Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The ProNoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this first episode of Season 2 of the P3 Podcast. Pretty special sort of episode tonight. We've not just got one guest, we've got two. And actually, one of them is going to be our co-host. And he's on the line, Ed Clancy. Were you MB, OB now, three Olympic goals, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And you've obviously been pivotal in tonight's guest. How are you doing, Ed? Everything all right? I'm good, well, yeah. I'm just so glad I went riding my bike today. The weather's been absolutely shocking over here. And I'm sure it's a different story for G-Man over in Monaco and that. Loading it up in the sun on his balcony, but... It was a bit overcast today, actually, Ed. Ah, oh, mate, what was the temperature? Oh, it was like low teens. Oh, no. Pretty cold, pretty chilly down here. I'll send you some warm milk in the post, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll sort you out. So obviously, introduced already, Gary Thomas, thanks so much for joining us on the PC podcast, mate. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's great. Really good, especially such a busy times. And I think, you know, we sort of touched in a sort of preamble before we come on air. I'm a South Walesian myself. I just want to know a little bit about how you got into cycling from Cardiff, because I know for a fact where I'm from, if I turned up at the local rugby club in Lycra, I would probably got my head kicked in. So, like, <laughs> what was it like growing up in Cardiff where cycling really wasn't the thing from my perspective or perception? Yeah, no, it was exactly the same in Cardiff. I only got into it because I was going swimming down the local leisure centre and they happened to have an outdoor velodrome there, Mandy Stadium. And, yeah, just joined. I've just seen these bikes with no brakes and one gear, just wanted to give it a go. Got the newcomer's track record. And ever since then, I just loved it, yeah. I think just... You know, made some good mates down there. There was a good little group of us that would travel away on the weekends to all over the country, you know, up to like Scunthorpe and, you know, Manchester, London Way, Reading and, and Essex. And so, yeah, it was just, it was great. Like, that's the reason I got into it, basically, was the fun side of it, really. It wasn't anything serious, really, at the time. You know, even after the racing, we'd be playing football or rugby or a bit of cricket or whatever when we were like you know camping out and stuff so it was just a good laugh and things but uh yeah it was kind of like you have two sort of sides to you really because you have your your cycling side and then you have your school side and none of them have any idea what you're on about like I remember the first time I shaved my legs and didn't tell anyone would wear like joggers in PE just so they didn't stand out too much luckily no one picked up on it I managed to get away with that. Yeah, That's a bad imagine. sign, isn't it, when you've got to like hide the fact from your mates that you enjoy cycling. I went down some podcast hole the other day when I was driving my van, and it was really talking about like kids and how important play is for kids to like develop mentally and learn. And you know, when I think back to the times we had together, you know, in the team pursuit and stuff before Beijing, I think about all the stupid stuff we did, and ninety nine point nine percent of it you couldn't mention on here, but. You know, personally, it's been a pretty flat year from, you know, so many different reasons. And I kind of feel like I've really missed just not playing as such. Adults don't play, do they? But I've missed fun and I've missed the banter. And I don't know, do you think that's been important to you and your career? Like, and do you still do it? Yeah, definitely. I think I was listening to a podcast as well the other day. I can't remember what it was now, but they're basically saying when you're a kid, you do it because you love it and you just want to enjoy it. And you can see it in some people who just lose sight of that. They get bogged down with all the pressure around it. You know, you get older, you get a mortgage, a family, yeah. you're competing, but it's, you're also getting paid and it turns into more of a profession and more of a chore sometimes to some people. And, or even like you guys now still on the track, you know, your whole sort of career is based around one event every four years. And it's a lot to commit to, isn't it really? Cause it, so much can go wrong, but yeah, I think the main thing is you still enjoy it. I still love just riding my bike. And I think I'm fortunate that I'm still in the team now in the Oscar Grenadiers. You know, Ben Swift's there, Luke Rose there, 
you know, I was dancing around in my boxers in Luke Rowe's house when I was 12. You know, we, <laughs> we go way back and uh, Swifty was racing when I started. Now, Stanard's just retired this year, but same with him, been racing with him since I was 12 or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's key, really. Just that mentality and just that way of sort of switching off together, really, and having a laugh together. And um, because, you know, three weeks in the Tour de France is pretty intense, let alone when you're trying to win the bloody thing, either with myself or somebody else. And, uh, you know, the intensity there, like with the media and the fans every day and you definitely need to have that time to just switch off. But then also, like you say, just enjoy it. Like actually realize like this is the Tour de France that we're doing. You know, if you're told like a 13, 14 year old G that you're going to be in the tour and blah, blah, blah. I would have like pissed my pants, you know, <laughs> I think it's easy to forget that. Yeah. So yeah, I think like, yeah, exactly. That. I think the main thing is, it's still enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking about some of those times when we were in Newton, the Willows now, like Phil Ed basically bought the first house out of the two of us and he did all this research about you know where's cheap but where's also quite close to the valley doing some research on data now nah, i don't believe that for a second <laughs> <laughs> so I've, i basically piggybacked off him and just bought a house 200 meters down the road from him he didn't and, even uh, look at it he just bought <laughs> if ed's back. looked into it that's good enough for me yeah i didn't go see it did i yeah <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even buy it. i think your dad howell went out to have a look didn't he and we just you had a punt and i can't remember how much it was but you just handed over the money it was like yeah let's just hope for the best brilliant when I think back, it was just fun. Like you were always the person out of the team pursuers that was just dead keen to have some banter and make lighter situations. And I don't know, I've always admired that about you. Like you, you're like a light switch, you know, you'll just, you'll party, you'll have a drink. And we almost like scheduled it in, you know, when we're in Manchester together. Yeah. yeah no, I do sort of miss that. And uh, I'm going to try to bring it back in a constructive way, I think. I mean, it's really hard, you know, when you're in the moment, you don't understand people's perception of you, you know, in terms of who you are, especially as an athlete. A lot of the people I talk to in terms of you is like, you know, I'd love to go for a pint with him. What a great lad. He's just down to earth, you know, mm. and, and I think that's a huge, huge sort of chuck up really for the type of person you are. I think it's quite a Welsh thing as well, isn't it really? Yeah. I think you don't <laughs> yeah. get many like big superstar knobheads, do you? Like no. all the rugby boys are good lads and, you know, even Gareth Bell, like one time most expensive player in the world. And I don't know him yeah. well at all, but, you know, just down to earth. Going back, Gareth, to those younger days and obviously as you matured and I have visions of you, you know, just getting on your bike on a Saturday morning, jam sandwich in the back pocket, heading up to Brecon or down the course mm. or whatever. Was is that what you did when you started extending your horizons and riding further? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, just down the local club, like um, meeting outside Cyclopedia, local bike shop and just going out with all the boys. And you had the time. They must have only been in their late 20s, early 30s, but they were like fully grown men, you know. Well, you are when you're late 20s, aren't you? But... <laughs> There was like the old boys in the club as well, like who, I don't know, to me, they seemed like they were 70, but they were probably in their 50s, you know, and uh, they just go all day. And like, I remember being up like Story Arms way and I recognized Story Arms and I was like, holy shit, like we came here like a couple of weeks ago with a school and like, I was like, we're so far from home. That was easily like an hour on the minibus. Like I, I can't get dropped now because I've absolutely no idea where I am. <laughs> not, that, not that they would have left me anyway, but as a kid you're just like wow I need to like you know stay with these boys and yeah so many times I'd get back completely like empty bonked on the bike and yeah get back and have one of my mum's massive Sunday roasts waiting for me F1 on it was uh, Amazing. good times yeah yeah brilliant so bridge a gap for me from a psychological perspective and what I'm talking about there is like where did the belief and the evidence come in your ability to grow on the road so you're a youngster going up to story arms and I don't know if you ever had that experience when you first climb in hills or mountains at that stage, which they are to you, isn't it? It's like, I'm not sure yeah. if I can get up here, never mind get up here quick. To, right, I'm now obviously 
bridging the gap to elite to the point where you went in the Tour de France. What was your mindset cycle through? And were, were there any pivotal points? I think um, without sounding a bit like a knobhead, I was always like kind of good at it. And I was always like got sort of one of the best in my little area. I just always loved it and always dreamt of being part of like the pros and always was kind of confident that I would make it in a roundabout way. And I'm not, I'm not a confident guy in the way that I just go around telling people, you know, like how Cav, Cav is like, he's a confident guy and he? he's a comfortable chap and he'll let you know what he's going to do, what he's going to win and, and this and that. Whereas, you know, I don't really like to talk about it. I like to keep my own sort of desires and, and whatever just in my head. What I've seen with Cav in the press is he'll make a statement because he wants to commit himself to it. I've said I'm going to win it, so I'm going to go for it. Where other people, and maybe this is what you're alluding to, they say that to themselves, not out loud. Yeah, like a, you make a big, big goal in your head. Like, for instance, when I decided, right, I want to go and try and win Grand Tours now, I told the team, like I said to Dave, this is my target, and that formalises it, you know, and like, right, I'm definitely doing it now, and, and this is what I'm going for. But the thing is, when I won the Junior Track Worlds, like the, I won the Scratch Race in, uh, in Los Angeles, and I think that was the turning point, really. That was the biggest sort of, yeah, switch when I was like, oh, actually, no, I really want to do this and can do this for a living. And the, the track was my main focus then. So it was about going to the Olympics, trying to win Olympic gold. But at the same time, still wanted to turn pro and still dreamt of winning the tour, but never thought that was possible. But then as the road career develops, you know, you, you target one-day races and then, you know, shorter stage races, five days, and then like a week, and then suddenly... You're in with a shout in the Grand Tours and you commit to that. So it was kind of over a long period, really, that progression. I think that that marries up with the ability where you have to be physically strong and psychologically strong to be able to put yourself in that position to do that and, and being in that environment for a bit longer. Ed, we've spoken in the past about your little dabble on the road in the continent. And I know I think you went there similar times, didn't you? Different areas, different teams. But I must be a massive rude awakening. Garrett's already touched on it I think as long as I've known him he's always had this quiet confidence in himself and he doesn't talk much at all to be honest but he's always thinking behind those sort of vacant eyes you know (laughs) 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 yeah no it was was funny like I remember going to like you know track races and world cups and things and even you know before like the Olympic final in Beijing Shane Sutton came around and what did he say we're doing you're doing 14 twos 14 twos is gonna win and then yeah. as soon as he walked off, G just shook his head and said, ah, we're going to do 14 O's. And like, you know, we had no evidence to think we were going to do that, but we did it or we had a good go, you know? And uh, that's just, that's what G's like. And I think it's that sort of mindset that you've, you've seen me speak about him before, Phil, you know, he's, he just has this quiet confidence. And I think that's what really took him to the top of the road as well, where others didn't quite make it, including myself. And it must've been 2007. And I was out there in Belgium with Paul Manning and Lambo Credit. And uh, G was living in Italy, riding for Barlow World, and he didn't often ring. But when he did, I knew there was something going on. And he was going through the Tour de France, and that particular day, he said he got dropped after, what was it, 5, 10 kg? And you said you roll the whole stage out the back on your own. I think it's just that mental resilience you have that kind of sets you apart, you know? And how many people get thrown into the Grand Tour? And you didn't finish in the Lantern Rouge. I think you were second to last overall. But you know, every day, I remember, you just took a shoe in, and you took a shoe in, and... Yeah, occasionally I get a text off you when you're on the massage bed with Hanley trying to like fix you for the next day. And so to go from that place, to like winning the tour, I know I'm your mate on that, but I'm just in awe of that sort of mental resilience you have. And, you know, even your injuries and stuff, we could do a whole podcast on Geraint Thomas injuries and comebacks. And 
I think that's what sets you apart to me. It's just that mental resilience, G-Man. But the, the really small experience I've had of it, you're not really thinking about that in the moment. You're just doing your job, aren't you? And you're getting on and you go, right, what have I got to do to get back on a bike tomorrow? What have I got to go to to execute the race? Is, is that is that a fair assumption? Yeah, pretty much. I think it's just, um, it's something I've always had. It's just you you always give 100%. For instance, like you say, if you crash, you just, where's my bike? Get me back on and then get to the finish and deal with consequences after and see what's wrong with you then. And yeah, that's something I've always had, just that drive, I guess. It's in you and it's something, you can't really train it. Well, you might tell me different, but it's just something that's just, if you want something, just fucking get your head down and go for it, you know, and that's it. And I think when I spoke to Steve Peters back like 2008 sort of time, who used to be our psychologist back then, he'd come out with stuff about, you know, going out and doing your best and, you know, not worrying about anyone else. And, you know, you've done all you can to get here and now just enjoy it all I was that's stuff that my dad used to tell me when I was like down in Mandy as a 12 year old. And um, I've always sort of had that approach really. So I think I'm lucky to have had someone like my dad as well, who didn't really, you know, you, you know, back then you'd see so many pushy parents telling your kids to do this and that and trying to talk tactics to a 14 year old. And it's like, just get out there and race your bike, you know? And yeah. so yeah, I'm fortunate really that sort of my dad was a big factor in uh, sort of my mental sort of attitude, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, I think you're right. Your upbringing is massively important in terms of building that resilience and their exposure. And I think that, you know, every parent wants the best for their children and they want to give them the best advice. But sometimes you ignore your parents, if my son's anything to go by, where he's like, yeah, dad, that makes logical sense, but I'm still peed off because I should have played better or I should have won that. So I'm going to use that to drive me further and drive again because I need to remember that. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many times now when I look back at things that happened when I was like 14 or something, my dad telling me, no, you can't do this or... Not to do with cycling, but just anything, you know. And then you look back when you're old, you're like, oh, I can see where he's coming from there. And I do exactly the same now. But at the time, it's just your mum and dad, isn't it? And you, you have to rebel a bit. But yeah, definitely lucky, lucky for them, really. So if we carry on that vein, if I say right. So obviously not so long ago, it probably seems like a year ago for you now. But obviously you had that freak incident at the Giro this year, the Giro Italian. For the non-cycling fans that are listening to this, obviously one of the three big, big races. It seemed like you were in great condition, favourite to win it. And then a random water bottle, someone's thrown at the curb, flipped you off your bike, you've injured yourself. And then, unbeknown, I think, to you at the time, how bad the injury was, you then cycled, what, over 120, 30 k's up Mount Etna with, what, yeah. a broken pelvis? What's going through your mind in that moment of, do you know how bad the injury is? Do you know that you just want to get through today and then we'll reassess whether we can bridge the gap tomorrow? Or is it like, do you know that something's not quite right? Uh, to be honest, I remember saying to Swifty, who I mentioned earlier, who I've known since I was 12, and he was in the race with me, and you know, he committed to be there as best he could to try and help me win. And it was like massive for the both of us really to be there together, trying to win the Giro. And, but yeah, I said to him within 10 K after doing it, like they, it was in the neutral zone as well. So they stopped the stage, allowed me to get back. Didn't have any spare kit. So the mechanics pinning my skin suit together because it was all flapping open, you know, half my ass was out and it wasn't pretty, but yeah, we were getting going. And I just said, Swifty art, oh, look, I just don't feel right. This feels similar to, 2013 when I fractured my pelvis then in the tour this isn't right and he was like yeah well we'll just get through today and then we'll worry about it later and I was like yeah yeah yeah, sound so let's get to the front let's ride as if nothing's wrong I sent the boys back to get me some painkillers because I didn't want to go back to see the dock the team or the race dock because I didn't want the other teams to know I was suffering and just trying to bluff it basically but once I got to the bottom of Etna which was, yeah, a big sort of maybe 16K or 10 mile finish climb. And um, I went out the back before we even started the climb. There was a few little ramps and some of the guys stayed with me. 
Ghana, who's like world time trial champion, like super talent. And he's waited with me, was Swifty. It was horrible, really, because I'd committed so much to that race. And I just knew then that it was over. Deep down, I was like, this isn't right. Like, I've definitely broken or fractured something here. And then I knew getting dropped at that point as well, the actual overall of the race was going to go that day as well. I was going to lose too much time. Yeah, I ended up losing 12 minutes to the leaders, about nine minutes to the peloton, which isn't too bad, really, with three <laughs> fractures in your pelvis. But like, Because I had an x-ray straight after the stage and they were like, oh yeah, no, it's fine. Nothing wrong. Start tomorrow. So I was like, oh, that's a result at least. But then like I was walking, I was like, this just isn't right. Like, doc, can I not get an MRI tomorrow before the start? Because the start was quite a late start. So then he was like, yeah, okay, I'll look into it. Got me an MRI. Sure enough, there was a fracture. And yeah, that's it. Went home. And then four weeks later, just to check that it was all healing, right? I had another MRI in Cardiff. And they were like, oh yeah, it's healing well, but you got three. It's not just one. The hardest bit mentally was, was the fact that I'd committed so much to it. And it was a disappointment to miss the tour. But I just felt I wasn't in the right shape to win that. So I, I just committed to the Giro and said, look, six more weeks of training, another couple of races and I'll be ready to go in the Giro. And yeah, 100% committed to that. Like, you know, i got a son who's 14 months now and my wife. And so I think I saw that maybe four days out of the six weeks. I went to the Giro, fully 100% for that. And like you say, I think I was in better shape than I've ever been really. And so, yeah, for it all to end on the third day was just like, phew, that was the hardest bit to take really. And it took a bit of time to just sort of get over that. Yeah, I can imagine, and you know that it's a longly ride. Then I would have thought, you know, you know, you're dropping back. You know, the race is slipping away. You're praying and hoping that it's not as bad as you think. But then, even that, I can imagine is well, actually, if there's no fracture, here, could I have pushed a bit harder? Even though you tried, you start yeah. questioning yourself. Yeah, like 2017, I crashed out of the tour, broke my collarbone, and the doctor's like right on the crash site. He was like, Ah, geez, but again, he was Spanish. That's my Spanish accent. <laughs> Brilliant. I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, and then I was like. Are you sure though? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's broken. I was like, no, 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 I'm going to keep going. You never know. So I carried on and then my buckle had come undone on my shoe. So I leant down to do it up and all my weight went through the side that I'd injured and the pain was just like agony. I was like, yeah, I think I have broken this now. So I ended up doing that descent and then stopped. And yeah, in the in the ambulance going to the finish, I was exactly thinking that. I was like, this collarbone better be broken now. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to live this down. But. I'll give you that, G, man. You do your best to walk off injuries like... Going back a long, long time now, was it like 2004, 2005 when you lost your spleen at the side of that road in Australia? Oh, yeah. Now, shit, you're not, Phil. He just got up. He sort of propped his bike up the side of this fence, sat down for 30 seconds, and he was going to get back on his bike. Well, you know what the drive for that is? I mean, I'm not sure who the, the number one Welsh rugby player was in those days, but he knows that he sees Alan Wynne-Jones getting smashed up every Saturday and he's got to get up and play on. So if he doesn't, we might have to take the dragon off his flag. You know, it's, it's that little pride <laughs> and that inner drive getting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, can I ask you a question about the Giro itself then? So I think sometimes the media forget that you guys in spotlight there and you professional athletes are human as well. And let's face it, they do try and stitch you up. And I, I do remember seeing, you know, a question or a comment around, you know, how would you feel about Teo winning it? And it must have sort of gone back to when Egan Banal won the Tour de France the year before. That as a human, it's okay to be chuffed a bit for my teammate, but gutted that I didn't win it because I, I should have been there doing that. That's completely human. And you know you can't say that because whatever you say, they're going to twist it. Yeah. You know, I, how frustrating is that for you? It is annoying that you can't be honest sometimes because you know it's going to be taken the wrong way. And yeah, exactly that. You know, I was made up that the team won, you know, but all good mates, the guys that rode the Giro and to see them win, it was great. You know, I was over the moon for them. Like, who would I have rather win that? Of course I'd want Teo to win. 
Yeah. But then, yeah, you do have the disappointment like, wow, geez, like I could at least still be there with them. I think at least with the tour in 19, you know, I was still there and still a part of it. And then, you know, ended up second. And so it wasn't too bad, you know. But yeah, the thing with the media and stuff is, you know, I thought I was used to it after all the Olympic stuff. But then after winning the tour, got stitched up a few times and it was just like, this is just mad really and I think that's the one good thing about living out here like I miss all family and friends at home but I think just being out of that UK sort of sportsman bubble really like oh you know I can see how some people really struggle with it yeah and I think as well going back to that point I made earlier in terms of a lot of the lads and that I work with said they'd love to go for a pint with you as, as a sportsman just because you're authentic and you are who you are and it must be so difficult that you can't even be yourself even when who you are is a good person that must be so frustrating. Do you know what I mean? You, you would never kick someone's back legs out. You would never stitch anybody. You would never criticise anybody. But you know that as soon as that microphone goes under your face, they're after that headline, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and most of the time, it's, it's okay. Like, I can just be honest and, and make a few, you know, off-the-cuff sort of jokes, which sort of come around to bite you on the arse sometimes <laughs> when, when people don't understand your sense of humour. But, yeah, there is the odd one that really just sort of, like, go for any sort of angle. And that's when you're just like, oh, I just can't be arsed with this, like, there's a few journalists now I'm just like, oh, I just can't be asked speaking to that guy because you just know they're always after something, you know, and that's just the way it is. And you just got to accept it, you know, that's part of being like an athlete, really. So, yeah, I suppose, especially when you put the pressures of what you're under, granted, they've got a job to do. And I never really see that as a justification, to be honest, but you're living like a monk, not just the three weeks of the race. And this is the same for you, Ed, with your camps and your Olympic camps and that is that it's the weeks and months preparations before that, it's your pre-season camps that when you've got such a long day, especially when you're competing really well, you know, you're getting held behind for your drug testing or if you've won, you've got the prize ceremony. And then on top of that, now you've got somebody asking you a question trying to stitch you up. It must be so frustrating. And I don't, I don't envy you, that's for sure. Yeah. Ed, you know as well, like the training those months before, those dark days in Manchester in November, December, they're, they're the worst bits, you know. The racing is almost the easy bit. Yeah, I reckon you're right, G-Man. I think everyone, like almost, even if they do it subconsciously, they work out like a bit of a game plan, don't you? When you're warming up, you know, when you're getting on your bike, and you almost learn how to control your own thoughts and emotions, don't you, by the time you sort of hit your 30s. And um, I think you're right there, G-Man. And nine times out of 10, I think, you don't win the race on like whatever, the 4th of July. You know, you win it in the months and years even preceding it, don't you? It's boring, isn't it? It's that old like, <laughs> quote, uh, excellence is a habit, not an act. And it, it is, it's, it's true. It's yeah. just made up of like, you know, all the mundane stuff, eating your five fruit and veg today, getting your 10 hours of sleep in and having weekly communication with your coast and just ticking all the boxes. Then you just get up on the day and just like tick the boxes, I guess. But yeah, I mean, to be fair, G, man, I can't relate to all the press and uh, all that stuff that you have to put up with these days. And, you know, I do love being back home in Britain and I'm fortunate that I've, you know, able to ride with one of the greatest teams in the world. I guess it's a blessing and a curse, the track being less high profile, you know, so I don't miss any of that stuff. And, I think, you know, around the home Olympics in 2012, we both had a bit of a taste of, I guess, like the high life and being in the media spotlight and all that. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be in it every day. Yeah, and I, I suppose, Gary, you've had almost 10 years of that, not just the Olympics, but obviously Team Sky and now Ineos. You've had quite a bit of practice with that. And I think what you were saying there in terms of, you know, success is, is a habit as well. You know, it's not something that just happens overnight. You know, he's lucky he's won the Tour de France. Well, hang on a minute. There's, there's 20 years of graph gone into this. Can you see your growth, Gary, from the formation of Sky and your work as a domestic and obviously the likes of Bradley Wiggins winning it and, and your own successes, to be fair, and, and the amazing performances you had to then helping, you know, obviously Chris Froome to then growing yourself to, well, actually, I know I can win this now. Was there some sort of psychological and physical growth in that period? Yeah, definitely. I think it was like you're learning all the time mentally, you know, watching Brad, watching Froome, like not just what they do well, but what they do badly from a, a helper point of view. 
you're just aware of that. So then when you end up in that position, you've got to lead a team, you're a bit more mindful of some of the things they did, which didn't necessarily work well for me. But then at the same time, a sport like cycling is, there's so many different cultures and, you know, nationalities. It's, it is a tough one. But yeah, physically, it's certainly developed, certainly more of a slow burner than what they are these days. You know, they win the tour when you're 21, 22, which yeah. is a bit crazy. When I knew you as a track rider, like you said, you were sort of like a slow burn on the road. I talked earlier about how you sort of finished your first Tour de France in a bit of a state. And then, you know, you sort of climbed up the rankings and then you kind of built the role as like a, not a domestic, a super domestic is what you call them, isn't it? You know, you're up there. You're definitely like one of the very best domestiques in the world. But then there was like this light bulb moment that just went off and then... I don't know what it was because, like, you know, you were out of my life living out there. But, you know, from the outside, there was just a switch in you. And, you know, when I've texted you more recently, we've had communications. You've just, you know, you can do it now. And you've got this, like, belief. But there was, like, a black and white moment from the outside where it's like, this is my yeah. new level now. And this is where I see myself at. Yeah, I think it was, like, the 2015 tour. Each tour I was doing, I wanted to get further and further into the race, further up the last climb, you know, and, and you either finish 50k to go or, you know, the last guy could be with the leader to the finish line or at least a K to go. So each year I wanted to be closer and closer to that finish line. And then, yeah, 2015, I was like up there every day. There was cobble stage on the flat. And I was there when some of the other boys who should have been there weren't. And then, you know, in the mountains, you know, was there. And then suddenly... It's like start at stage 19 and I'm still fourth overall. But then that day I had a bad day and I'd burnt all my matches, you know. I'd used up too much energy the whole race, like hadn't thought about myself in any way really and blew up and then ended up, I don't know, like 15th or something. Like that day I just sat up completely, lost 20 odd minutes and tried to recover the best I could so I could still do something the next day for the team. But that was the point where I thought, oh, hang on, I can actually do something here. If I just look after myself, I can certainly be on the podium in the tour or, you know, win one of the other ones. And um, so, yeah, that was the point which sort of really sort of clicked with me, I think. Yeah. I think there's like that, without going too theoretical, I think there's a bit of an equation where you've got to have that talent, whatever you want to define that as. You want to have that consistency level of hard work, but you also need the opportunity. You know, you mm. need that right opportunity. And I think what you've done is proven yourself time and time again that should the opportunity arise, you're ready to put your hand up. And obviously you grabbed it with both hands, didn't you? And uh, I'm sure you will again because uh, you've got a few years ahead of you, haven't you? That's for sure. Yeah, a few more. But uh, they are running out slowly, though. It is strange, actually, when, you know, Stannard retiring this year and then, you know, Ed next year, possibly. Yeah. Hey, you know, this is probably good. I don't know if this is a worth, like, voicing, but, man, you, you're, and Pete Kenner, you two are probably, like, the biggest influences I had on sort of cracking on for another year, you know? Yeah, yeah, I remember speaking to you back in, yeah, no, when was it? Like, April? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really was. Well, I mean, Phil knows this as well. I spoke to him about it. You know, I was really in sort of two minds about what to do. And I mean, we could have had a bit of an exit strategy and, you know, those other things we could have gone into. But it was you and Pete in particular that both said, like, there's plenty of stuff you can be getting on with. And it's a long time in retirement. And because I was sort of worried about, like, you know, we're going to be able to keep this up. I'm still going to be able to do my thing when I'm 36. Your message was pretty as much. Like, even if you've got a 1% chance of doing something amazing next year, it's a chance worth taking. And I was like, you know what, G-Man, we're going huh. for it. So, yeah, there's a little bit of inside info. Well, but how was it back, yeah. uh, being back in the track a couple of weeks ago, testing out the new bike and all that? It was great, actually. I loved it. But phew, it was a shock to the system. Like, Because I turned up, they were like, oh, you got to ride around at 55k an hour to test this aero <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and I was yeah. thinking, 55k an hour, that sounds bloody quick. I'd basically been off the bike for six weeks because I'd fractured my pelvis, as I just said. 
I'd only been riding for a week and then I'd jump on the track and oh, just to be back on a pursuit bike on the track was just really nice feeling actually. And um, it feel like a bit of a different place, just like there's different faces, different mechanics. It's just, do you know what I mean? I mean, I've just sort of seen it slowly evolve person by person over the years, but. Yeah, it seemed different, but also nothing had changed. The feelings I got hadn't changed, but everything else around me had really, other than the track. You know, obviously you've got the BMX bit now, some new gym and, you know, the physio room's completely different and, we walked past somewhere. I was like, oh, that used to be a canteen, didn't it? And somebody was like, what? I've no idea. Like, I've been here five years. I didn't know that. That's the physio room you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. not so, that, G. I'd, I'd even forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only thing constant's changed, boys, that's for sure, isn't it? Now, Garrett, I'm conscious of time, mate. I've got a couple of quickfire questions of us, all right? And you can blame your podcast, mate, for this, because I know you've got what's occurring with Luke, and Luke yeah. tries to stick in some questions there for the guys coming on. So he's obviously the one that does a bit of the prep. We'll fire through these. The biggest question I need to ask is what you prefer to be called because I get the impression G was like an in-house nickname and then it got out there and expanded and everyone would have known you as Geraint. What's the deal with that? I like Geraint because not many people say it, but I don't mind G really. Although it is a bit weird when somebody I've never met before, you know, is overly friendly, like almost hugging me, calling me G. Yeah, I can imagine for sure. All right, cool. So quick fire then. So sporting hero. Thierry Omri. Ah, interesting. Arsenal fan then. Yeah. We'll leave that one there. So it's not talking yeah, about move that. Yeah, Okay. Non-sporting hero. My mum and dad. Oh, look at that legend. I'll make sure I tag her in this when I share it. Brilliant. <laughs> right. Picture the scene. Few years time, you're retiring. You're having a big private party in Cardiff, maybe Tiger Tiger. You're allowed five people. Me and Ed are already on the list. So there's three others. <laughs> Who's coming? This is probably really soppy, but my wife, my son, and then who will be the third one? Oh, maybe my other best man, Ian, because Ed was one of my best men. Amazing. Ian and Ed were my best men. So, yeah, that'd be nice. cracking, I would. Yeah. Right. There's a reason for these next questions. So, another Tour de France win or another Olympic gold? Oh, that's hard. Tour. Another Tour de France or first Giro win? Oh. What's that? Sorry. <laughs> Tour. 2021 goes perfectly. Everything's planned. You know, we park 2020. What's the one big goal for 2021? I think you've just explained it. The tour, but you know, the Olympics is only a week, 10 days after that. So you can wrap all that up in one big yeah. goal, can't you? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to be greedy. Go for it. Do a Brad, isn't it? Double up in the same year from 2012. Don't blame you. And here's one for you. What's it mean to be Welsh? It's everything, isn't it? Bang. That's the answer. That's what I wrote down. <laughs> I predicted the answer. That's all you have to say. <laughs> Guys, conscious of time. Um, I know we're going to stay on after we finish the recording, but time flew by. I really appreciate all your time. Ed, thanks very much for co-hosting and obviously facilitating the setup. Gary, I know you're a busy boy with a lot, a lot of stuff going on, but I really appreciate your time and thanks so much for joining us on the P3 podcast. Cheers, mate. Pleasure. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.